the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right. The meeting is now officially called to order. (laughs) Good afternoon and welcome. It is the Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 17th of May. Trust you're having a great week and uh, getting ready to easy into the weekend here uh, in a couple of days. In fact, I talked to your boss. Come into work tomorrow and uh, we've cut an agreement. We'll let you have the following Tuesdays then off. Does that sound like a plan? I thought you'd like that. (laughs) Just one of the benefits of listening to this program. Any event, one of the other benefits is you get a chance to enjoy some wonderful insights from one of our special guests on the program who takes a look at the news, not just based simply on the facts, but really the principles and ideology that drives the news of the day. And um, it's always a fascinating discussion when Bob Zadek joins us. He, of course, is the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek Show that's heard on um, our sister station, actually two of our sister stations here in the Bay Area. Bob's going to join us a little bit later on in this hour. You probably heard U.S. Supreme Court gave the thumbs up to legalize sports gambling. How much is really going to change? I mean, um, now it's gone from being illegal to legal. Is that necessarily the case? And are people going to start gambling more? Who's to say? And what are the repercussions potentially from the economic side of it all? We'll talk about that and many other topics when Bob Zadek joins us later on in tonight's program. We've got traffic for you throughout the broadcast tonight. And Brian Peacock hanging out once again in the KFAX Traffic Center. So um, you got no excuse to go anywhere. Just stay here. We'll keep you informed, hopefully a little bit entertained as well. One of the big issues that's taking place this weekend is focus on unreached individuals. And um, it's a pretty significant number. One would think in the day and age of mass communications at the level of maturity that we have today, the Internet, things of that sort, that there would hardly be a person on planet Earth that has not been exposed to the gospel. But in fact, just the opposite is true. More than two billion people, what does that put it, nearly a third of the planet, have never heard the gospel. So the focus this weekend is on that very topic. Sunday, May the 20th, Pentecost Sunday. Joining me with more on this story is John Fugler. John is the president of the International Day for the Unreached, also serves as chairman of the Alliance for the Unreached. And John, great to have you on the program. Craig, thank you. It's good to be here. A lot of folks may find it astonishing to hear that it's that large of a number. Is that really true, more than $2 billion? It is. And, uh, you know, I sit here and I see a, a countdown clock going uh, right now down to the International Day for the Unreached on Sunday. And then there could be another counter going up with the number of people that are unreached in this world. And, I mean, we're talking $2 billion and then $2.5 billion. We And now, according to the Joshua Project, over $3 billion unreached because we're just not getting to them fast enough. And that number keeps going up. Now, when so, you speak of this, this astonishingly large number, are they individuals that primarily reside in the 1040 window, or, or are they literally spread across the planet? 
Yeah, primarily in the 1040 window. And uh, as you know, some of the, the highest population areas, uh, India, for example, you've got uh, China, um, a number of countries that are that are in there. In fact, in one people group in, in northern China, it's the Dong people. There's 1.4 million people. And, and get this, Craig, no churches, no Christian radio, no Bibles, no believers, and there's one Christian workers for the 1.4 million people haven't heard about Jesus. That's just one people group. It's remarkable when you think of the advancements in technology, um, not just the basics, like the ability, obviously, to do mass and fairly inexpensive printing, but um, we've got the ability to uh, transmit via short wave, certainly with the um, uh, promulgation of the Internet at every level. Almost everybody has access to it. And yet, while we see that as sort of the, the, the easy highway from a uniquely first world or Western perspective, the reality is that a lot of these people, I would suppose, John, that you're speaking of, also live in areas or live in conditions from a socioeconomic position where they're either hard to reach from a geographical standpoint or a linguistic standpoint, and and perhaps, too, simply because while we enjoy easy mass communication in the first world, that's not always true for the third world. Yeah, that's true. You, you've uh, said it correctly there, Craig, and those are reasons that they are people who are unreached, who are not touched by the gospel, never heard of the name of Jesus. And and just because shortwave goes in or Internet streaming goes in with the gospel, it's not like these folks are looking for it and are going to, to find it. In most cases, we've got to tell them. Yes, they do scan across the dial on shortwave. Yes, they do find these websites that and even if they find them, are they really going to be interested? They may see it and, and just turn away from it. So there really needs to be some sort of human contact, and that's why there needs to be uh, Christian workers there. That's why we've got to equip the local church there if, if one exists. And that's why, you know, the Jesus film goes out into areas that are unreached, and but it takes somebody to bring that to bring the message out in the Jesus films. So, so it almost sounds like from what, what you're describing, John, is that to a degree the church in the Western world has maybe gotten a little bit lazy here, and I, I don't want to go to meddling to start pointing fingers, but I think <laughs> if, if you did a survey of the average believer, they would say, well, you know, what with technology and satellite, Internet shortwave, all this wonderful technology that we can harness, the ability to... Um, deliver the gospel, so to speak, to the ends of the earth has become easier and easier. But what you're suggesting is that the the old-fashioned human touch, the, the notion mm-hmm. of sending missionaries, equipping locals, encouraging the, the growth of the local church, doing church planting, engaging in things like even Bible translation, which I suppose even here in 2018 is still probably got to be some uh, minority tongues that have not yet had Scripture translated into their own language, so that at the end of the day, the real work really from the most effective means still remains the same way that it was done 2,000 years ago. Yes, and uh, one of the things you, you said that is so important is equipping the local church uh, some of these places there isn't a church, there aren't any believers, but in some places there are. And we, when we talk about unreached, we talk about um, um, a people group where, where 2% or less are evangelical Christians. And that's, that's kind of the tipping point. When you get to 2% or more, you've got enough, uh, enough believers that they can begin reaching their own people. It doesn't happen overnight, but that's, 
that's the way that's what we need to work for. We can't just keep sending missionaries in and expect in a cross cultural way and in some places we can't even get into these countries. There's no way you and I are gonna get into Somalia. <laughs> but somehow, some way we need to equip local believers who will then reach their people for Christ. It is not an easy road. So the purpose then of the focus on the Day of the Unreached, this coming Sunday, May the 20th on Pentecost Sunday, is not, I would imagine, simply, John, an informational approach, but rather, what, encouraging people to really understand the role that we all play and should play? Exactly. And, uh, you know, just when you, you hear the word unreached, what does it really mean? We're going to explain that on Sunday. We've got a, a live event that's going to be streamed worldwide uh, at 5 o'clock Pacific, by the way, on Sunday. And, and, and to be able to just share what it means, what unreach means, uh, who these people are, where are they, put names, put faces on them, and then what would God's Spirit do in the, in the hearts of people who hear about this, the believers who hear about unreached people groups, to whether to pray or maybe even go on a short-term missions trip or, or even go full-time into missions or, or give, or there's some way that you will take a step to enter into this world, which seems so strange, what can you do to be part of the solution and bring the gospel to these people? The emphasis, of course, will be this Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, that is May the 20th. And uh, to find out more information about how your church can, should be involved, or churches that will be participating in the live nationwide broadcast at 5 p.m., you can go to dayfortheunreached.org. There's also a number of other resources and materials available there at that website. Again, dayfortheunreached.org. I'd like to thank John Fluger, President of the International Day for the Unreached and Chairman of the Alliance for the Unreached, for that update. Being with us here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. Again, that website, dayfortheunreached.org. 5.15 on the clock. We're going to change directions here, and as we do so, get you a look at the road ahead. The latest now from the KFAX Traffic Center as we say good afternoon to Brian Peacock. Hey, Brian, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on this Thursday edition of Lifeline. And as we uh, join our next guest, it's always a spirited conversation as we address issues of the day. And as he often does in his nationally syndicated weekend program, he deals with not just the facts behind the news, but the principles and ideology that's driving the news in the first place. He is Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast live Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., on our sister station, 860 AM KTRB, and a reprise broadcast Saturday evenings at 5 p.m. on Business Radio 1220 KDOW. Robert, always great to have you with us. Thanks for having me again. Glad to be here. Lots of things going on in the world of news. One of the big things, of course, that is beginning to get some excitement, and that is word earlier this week that SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, has handed down a decision on the issue of sports betting. Now, at a level, a lot of us were kind of surprised because... (laughs) I don't know anybody who likes sports that isn't in go- involved in gaming at one level or another. I guess it just changes the the uh, rules of engagement here. But I have to wonder, did the SCOTUS decision really make sports betting legal in the United States? The SCOTUS decision, which didn't quite 
legalize sports betting, although that's a a fair starting point, what the Supreme Court said was it said something much more important than that. The Supreme Court, uh, the Congress, the federal government, enacted a statute uh, some time ago called the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act. Of course, Congress always names its bills with cozy names so everybody who would be against protecting uh, professional and amateur sports answer nobody but what it really did was it prohibited states from authorizing sports gambling so it said to the states you cannot authorize sports gambling now uh, the background behind that statute was It was probably done by influential casino owners. If you remember, Harry Reid was in charge in those days. Harry Reid was from Nevada. He was uh, thick as thieves, and that's not an inappropriate metaphor. He was thick as thieves with the gambling interests in Nevada. And, of course, sports betting was legal in Nevada. So crony capitalism being what it is, Harry Reid being the crony capitalist that he was or the uh, enabler of crony capitalist, he was perfectly happy to pass a federal law that prevented prevented states from encroaching on the almost monopoly which the Las Vegas gambling interests had. And the word monopoly ought to cause all of our listeners to recoil in anger and in fear. Okay, so what was wrong with Congress doing that, besides the fact it was favoritism to one uh, special interest? Well, what was wrong with it is the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment, which I dare say Nobody knows, nobody pays much attention to. Fortunately, the Supreme Court did. The Tenth Amendment preserves to the states all uh, powers not specifically given to Congress. Now, it's hard to find powers that aren't given to Congress these days because of Supreme Court decisions, but the Tenth Amendment says what it says. And the Supreme Court, in a, in a case that was started out in New Jersey when Governor Christie was gov- when Christie was governor, you know, of course Governor Christie wanted to have gambling in Atlantic City and throughout the state to raise money, so he brought an act. He, his legislature passed a statute legalizing sports gambling, which gave birth to this litigation. Worked its way up to the Supreme Court. What's the big deal? What's the what's the federal case involved. Well, the question was, the statute prohibited state legislatures from doing something. And our Constitution forbids Congress, federal Congress, from interfering in the operation of state legislatures and state governments. It is called commandeering, an old-fashioned word, but Congress cannot compel a state to do federal bidding. It cannot commandeer a state to enforce a federal statute. And that was the test. The Supreme Court in a 7-2 to two decision, and I'll explain in a moment why it's so important, the Supreme Court said that the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act is unconstitutional because it tells the states what they can and cannot do. So it is important on a bunch of levels. First of all, on the most basic level, what's Congress 
why should Congress interfere with how the states operate? Why should Congress make a value judgment, a moral judgment about gambling? But out, we can make our own moral decisions. Thank you very much. But more importantly, it is yet another transfer back to the states of power that our federal government has been diverting to the federal government for centuries. And Remember, what we had with drug legalization is the states have said, we're legalizing marijuana. We don't care if it's illegal. If it's a federal crime, we're doing it anyway. In same-sex marriage and in other issues, the states have said, we're in charge now. We're not going to do what Washington wants. Libertarians and most conservatives favor a devolution in power back to the states. The closer the power is to the people, the easier it is for the people to understand and control it. So this is a profound victory for federalism. States butt out of state, federal government butt out of state affairs, leave us alone. We, each state, will make our own decisions. Thank you very much. That's why this is so important. Now, I should also mention that nothing I have said is a particular endorsement of betting on professional or amateur sports or even high school sports, and nothing I have said is an endorsement of gambling in general. Everybody will make their own decision as to morality. This is only a question of should the federal government be involved in telling a citizen in rural Georgia or in New Jersey what they morally should or should not do. Thus, it gives me goosebumps when these victories occur. They don't happen all that often, but they seem to be happening more and more these days. So I have a, you can almost hear the big broad smile on my face (laughs) as we stick our thumb in the eye of the feds and we say, leave us alone. Or in the words of the founders, don't tread on me. Now, I have to ask you, as sort of a sidebar question, and I'm glad that you sort of gave some of the background in relationship to Nevada and why it had long held the right to sports gaming, obviously that had been, quote-unquote, grandfathered in because of certain levels of influence uh, by Henry Reid back in Washington, D.C. But as this moved forward and states began to look at this, I would imagine with a bit of saliva dripping down the side of their mouths in anticipation of increasing their uh, revenues, whether they decide to uh, tax Uh, uh, private casinos or maybe uh, venture further into the uh, gaming business vis-a-vis what we do in states like California with the lottery. Uh, I have to wonder, where do the controls come? Uh, I'm reminiscent, Bob, of the 1919 World Series, Chicago White Sox against the Cincinnati Reds. We know that essentially there were uh, half a dozen or so guys in that game that essentially threw the game because of illegal gambling. If this now becomes a matter where every state says, aha, we're going to legalize sports betting. How do you protect the integrity of the game? You protect the integrity of the game by teaching and managing uh, and trying to have moral players and a moral system. You don't manage morality by managing the temptation. You manage morality by managing the succumbing to the temptation. We don't try, just like we tried to manage 
the morality of drinking. If you consider alcoholism to be immoral, you can't manage it by cutting off the alcohol. You manage it by education, by doing the best you can to teach those people close to you the difference between right and wrong. Morality is a family affair. It is not a national affair. And families will set their own moral standards and pass it along to those they love. And but you cannot, you cannot, it is, as you know, at the time that the 1919 Black Sox, as they were called, uh, fixed the World Series, gambling was illegal. So the legality of gambling did not cause the problem because gambling was illegal, just like the legality of any substance doesn't cause the problem. It is the weakness, the temptation, the lack of moral compass that causes problems, not the availability of being able to participate in the moral behavior. And what an irony that in the same year, 1919, the Volstead Act was passed, setting up one of the most failed experiments in legislation and morality nationally that we've ever seen. And that, of course, was prohibition, which uh, ended up becoming quite the boon for illegal uh, syndicates and organized crime at all. If you've just joined us, Bob Zadek is with us tonight. He, of course, is the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek program. His show broadcasts live Sunday mornings at 8 a.m., a great alternative to a lot of the nonsense that you hear in the boring talking heads on network television. If you're looking for a fresh alternative to insights, and as you've just heard, many of the uh, principles, not only from a historical viewpoint, constitutional standpoint, but, but really coming down to the ideology that drives the day's news, then his program is one you won't want to miss. Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. KTRB, also on 1220 a.m. KDOW, Saturday evenings at 5 p.m. All right, we're going to take a brief time out here, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, we'll talk about an issue that's occurring in Seattle, Washington. The parallels, although, close to San Francisco are so close to home, you'll be astonished. We'll talk a bit about um, being sleepless in Seattle and more as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues here on KFAX. All right. We'll pause, get you an update on traffic right quick. The latest back over at the KFAX Traffic Center with Brian Peacock. Brian. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We are visiting today with nationally syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. By the way, I'll mention Bob's most recent book, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy, is available through Bob's website, Bob Zadek, Bob Z-A-D-E-K, Bob Zadek. We're talking about the news of the day and uh, the most recent issue going on in a city like Seattle, which in many respects is sort of a mirror of the Bay Area, both in terms of its uh, level of uh, liberalness and uh, certainly high tech and uh, even market growth. Uh, Cost of real estate skyrocketing there, just as it has here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And with that has been a skyrocketing level of homelessness. And Well, certainly, I think from a humane standpoint, we need to do something about addressing the issue of housing costs and 
how to help people that are um, struggling and down on their luck and and need help. That's a, that's a vital issue, I think, um, facing every major metropolitan community across the United States. The problem is that there is a progressive approach to this that typically involves reaching their hands into somebody else's wallet and seldom ever really resolves the problem. Let's witness what's going on in the city of Seattle, where, um, Bob, I understand they're they're not only sleepless up there, but as you suggest, they're pretty senseless up there as well. Tell us a bit about what's going on and what the Seattle City Council thinks is the brilliant solution to Seattle's housing crisis. Craig, I thought you'd never ask. I'm happy to talk about Seattle. I'd like to start my discussion of Seattle with giving great thanks that Seattle is there and that it is doing what it's doing. But let me explain. We all, all, most of us eat mushrooms once in a while or a lot, even though we know that certain mushrooms will kill you because they're poisonous. Okay, how do we know which ones are poisonous? Well, somebody ate the wrong one, and they died. And what happened when they died? We kind of learned, stay away from that mushroom, it's going to kill you. And we then were smarter as a result of that unfortunate person who picked the wrong mushroom. What does it have to do with Seattle? Seattle is our poisoned mushroom eater. As they experiment and fail in the process, hopefully San Francisco, which in many ways is a Seattle wannabe, even though it's a larger city, San Francisco hopefully will learn don't eat that mushroom from Seattle as Seattle dies a slow, painful death, and we will not eat the mushroom. Case in point, and you're quite right, Craig, that Seattle is uber-progressive, it is an uber-nanny city, and it abhors, Seattle abhors personal freedom, free choice, and people making their own decisions. Now, case in point, uh, Seattle has a homeless problem. Now, the homeless problem is caused by the very same governmental factors that cause the San Francisco homeless problem, and that is restrictive zoning laws that make housing so expensive, that is, the government does, not the market, by very rigid zoning, that it's too expensive to build. So nobody builds housing because it's too darn expensive, and there's nobody to pay those prices. So there's not enough housing, thus homelessness. It's the same problem. Seattle's solution is to say, okay, let's take the job creators, the biggest corporations in Seattle that make Seattle their home, like Amazon and uh, 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 there are many other corporations. There's about 20 very large corporations. And they said, as to these large corporations, we're going to charge them $500 per employee per year, and that money will go to build housing for the homeless. Amazon says, not so fast. Amazon announces it's going to build a second uh, global headquarters somewhere other than Seattle. It stops construction, although it started again just the other day, on a second office building. It says, we're out of here. We're not going to pay for your 
your folly. And so the job providers, the engines of growth, the engines of the economy, will vote with their collective feet and will leave, and Seattle will have not only a lot of homeless people, but a lot of middle-class people out of work or moving to follow their employer. So that's experiment number one. But Craig, it gets much, much worse than that. Uh, Seattle decided that landlords, and Craig, just imagine you were a landlord, you had as an investment a six-story building or a four-story building, and you had a couple of tenants. And uh, you care very much about who rents your property. It's like it's your property. Well, Seattle said it is passed a statute that said it is a crime. It is a crime punishable by a fine of up to $55,000. It is a crime. What is the crime? It is a crime to check the criminal background status of a applicant to be a tenant. So you have a tenant who wants to rent an apartment. It's against the law to see if they committed a crime other than a sex crime. So a landlord is denied the most basic property right of selecting who's going to be his or her tenant and go to jail if they try to do a background check. Well, and moreover, it it, it also denies them the right to protect their other tenants. If a landlord doesn't have the right to bar, say, a convicted drug dealer or an arsonist, a bomb maker, a meth cooker from their apartment building, then what is it also doing to not only the, the, the quality of life for the other tenants in the building, but let's say you start to get individuals like that that are suddenly renting because a landlord no longer has the ability to do a background check. Now suddenly that becomes an undesirable address and it begins to then adversely affect the landlord. So there, there's an economic side of this too, isn't there? Oh, you bet. But wait, Craig, there's more. Uh, in 2015, Seattle, which has about the, one of the highest recycling rates in the country, something like 80% of all recyclable material gets recycled. It's very, very high. And Seattle had separate bins like the Bay Area, one for recyclable, one for landfill, and one for compost. That's where foodstuffs go. And Seattle had a pretty high rate of compliance, but they weren't happy. So what did they do? They deputized refuse collectors, the people who pick up the trash. They made them law enforcement officials, and they empowered them to write tickets. And they were told, go through the trash. If you see a banana peel or a chicken bone, you can write a ticket on the spot. Now, that seems pretty bizarre. Next, they're going to be carrying guns. But it gets worse than that, Craig. Seattle still wasn't happy with the compliance, even though you had garbage men going through your trash to look for banana peel or apple shavings. But it got much worse, Craig. To show you the ex- how extreme Seattle behaves, Seattle decided that wasn't enough. And they empowered the garbage collectors. They had these big pieces of bright red paper with adhesive on one side. And the garbage collector would stick this bright red adhesive on your garbage pail so your neighbors would know 
you had a got you had a banana peel in your throwaway garbage so you could be shamed in your neighborhood next thing you know you voted out of your golf club and your children <laughs> don't have anybody to play with at school because you had a red sticker on your garbage pail how offensive is that and it gets worse and worse and worse and seattle then passed the statute craig and then i'm i'm sort of done for the minute uh, again focusing on landlords and they worried about something called subconscious bias so they passed a statute that said a landlord will establish standards for who it's going to rent an apartment to. And the first person who meets those standards, the one who got there the earliest, they must get the apartment. The landlord cannot say, you know, this person seems a little nicer. I'll go to the... Not allowed to do that. It was first come, first served, or else you go, or else it's a fine. That's Seattle. Now, not only are you sleepless in Seattle, not only are you homeless in Seattle, not only are you shamed in Seattle, but you have to move because Seattle is is the mushroom eater that hopefully will save San Francisco from going down the same unpleasant road. Well, and it strikes me, Bob, that that some of these progressive approaches to uh, dealing with, uh, you know, common problems that any major uh, metropolitan area has to deal with seem to be perhaps long on intention, on good intentions, but very short on insight or even short on the understanding of basic rules of um, laws of supply and demand. I mean, for example, Seattle was one of the first cities to pass a very high minimum wage. I think uh, currently their minimum wage stands at $15 an hour. All of that was enunciated with great pride as a way of dealing with Seattle's looming housing crisis. And yet here's the utter irony that the average two-bedroom apartment in Seattle costs about $2,700 a month. So even as you're working that 40-hour-a-week, $15-an-hour part-time job, at the end of the year, you will have made $31,200, but that apartment costs you $32,400, leaving you $1,200 short. So it, it once again demonstrates that sense of short-sightedness that we think we can go in and engage in legislation one level or another to either modify behavior or somehow break the rules of the laws of nature and the laws of supply and demand and think that's somehow going to change things. And Craig, if any of our listeners um, want to know how to defend or how to uh, successfully logically attack any minimum wage laws if you find yourself in the unhappy circumstance of debating against a defender of minimum wage laws. Just ask them, why is it only 15? If the minimum wage of 15 makes people wealthier, why not make it $100 an hour and everybody will be in the middle class in one second? And the answer is, if that seems absurd, then 15 is arbitrary as well. And why in the world do you want to make it a crime for two adults to negotiate what is to each of them a fair price and for them to shake hands and say, you're in. You can work here for $6 an hour. Both are happy with the bargain, except they go to jail because somebody else has said, no, it's too low. The utter, the denial of freedom, the attacking of freedom of contract, the denial of people whose who's value of a day of an hour of their labor because they are unskilled their labor is only worth let's say five dollars an hour that person can never get a job 
can never, ever work again. Because if there's a minimum wage job, the employer will hire a college grad and pay the college grad $7 rather than hire somebody who has no skills, whatever. So minimum wage laws discriminate profoundly against people on the lowest rung of the job ladder, the very people who they're designed to protect. It's insanity, Craig. It's utter insanity. Well, and certainly a disincentive as well in terms of the the capitalist viewpoint on uh, work and reward. And then when you you add this into the insanity of the attempt, clearly, at least in my opinion, by uh, the City Fathers of Seattle to address community problems by simply increasing the size of their coffers, and that essentially is what this $500 per employee tax is going to do, and communicate to some major corporations like Amazon and I don't know who else is up there, uh, certainly Starbucks, I think Boeing is based out of there, that you're not welcome here. And you're, we're, we're, we're going to punish you uh, through things like high property taxes and other add-on taxes in a state that, oddly enough, has no income tax. It is absolute insanity. And at the end of the day, yeah, it does sound as if they're going to attempt to eat the poison mushroom. Let's hope that communities like San Francisco are paying close attention and wait until they've digested fully that mushroom before we decide to begin munching on our own. At least we wind up in the same predicament. Bob Zadek is with us tonight, host of the Bob Zadek program. His show heard every Sunday at 8 a.m. He is nationally syndicated, locally carried on radio station 860 a.m. KTRB, The Answer, again, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. There is a reprise broadcast, I might mention, Saturdays at 5 p.m. on 1220 a.m. KDOW Radio. Bob's latest book, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy, available on his website, along with other resources as well as program notes and uh, some great insights at bobzadek.com. You can also catch podcasts of previous programs there, bobzadek, C-A-D-E-K.com. Let's take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Bob Zadek as Lifeline continues. All right, traffic, let's see who's got it. Maybe you're stuck in it. Let's find out what's going on. We've got Brian Peacock with the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Brian. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have talked in the past with Bob Zadek, whose program is broadcast on 860 AM, The Answer, Sunday mornings at 8 AM, about the topic of trade wars and tariffs. And Bob, recent news might suggest, I don't know, there's either a reversal of opinion in relationship to trade wars in China, or <laughs> maybe it, maybe it'll wind up being a reversal of fortune. I don't know. But what, what do you take of the recent comments by the president with regard to ZTE, the big telecom manufacturer in, in China, who had come under U.S. Um, sanctions for a violation of U.S. policy in relationship to trade with Iran and North Korea. Uh, now there's talk about that potentially ZTE could go under as a result. It might cost China 75,000 jobs, and suddenly the president seems to be doing a, an about-face on this. Is this indicative of a notion that possibly the trade war is beginning to cool? Well, It's hard to say, Craig, because I have a rule on my show and in my conversations with my friends and with people who enjoy talking about issues such as this. And my rule is, and it's a sanity preservation rule, my rule is you must ignore every single thing Donald Trump says 
in part because often it is offensive and it just makes me cringe. And but that's just simply the way he that's his temperament and personality. But in part because it doesn't indicate what he's going to do. And you raised the perfect example. His recent statement, his rambling about ZTE is totally contrary to everything he said before. So did he change his mind? I doubt it. Did he think about what he was going to say before he said it? I doubt it. I'm not trying to be unfair, but that's what I think. So my rule is I look at what he has done and I ignore what he says because what he has done is far more tangible and at least there's some evidence of what his policies are. And so I am a bit more sympathetic if I add up all the things he has done, many I abhor and many I strongly support, and some I say only he could have done it, and he did something which was a gift to me as a libertarian. No other public official could do that, either because he's ignores politics or whatever. I don't want to psychologize because it's not what I understand. So I tend not to pay attention. I literally, when he's on television, I have, thank God, for my mute button, and I let him, <laughs> uh, uh, let him move his lips, and I don't. I eat my dinner and let him. I don't try to lip read, and I wait till he's off the screen, and I hear somebody telling me what they think is going to happen, and often or usually that's more accurate than what he says is going to happen. So I'm guided by what he does. I'm guided by other speculation about what they think he's going to do, but the one thing that isn't an indication of what he's going to do is what he says he's going to do. That's not an indication at all. Do you think the talk, and again, with, with, with the, the foregoing um, warning or set of ground rules, do you think the talk in relationship to things like trade unbalances, and uh, there's certainly been, I think, an appropriate focus on the fact that a lot of goods that leave the United States headed for China get there and have 25 percent tariff slapped on them, but the very goods that come from China back to the United States on the same ships uh, returning only have a 2 percent tariff on them, that bringing about a change in that or engaging in saber-rattling with Beijing is going to be helpful or hurtful in the long run to the U.S. economy? You ask two different questions. Saber-rattling is talk. I have no idea what the effect of that's going to be, so I have to beg off on that. As to tariffs, the tariff that the, Chi that the Chinese government imposes on U.S. goods is nothing other than a tax on the otherwise free choice of Chinese citizens who choose to buy American goods for reasons of price and quality. More importantly, perhaps, is when Trump threatens a tariff on Chinese and other countries' goods coming into the U.S., it is a tax, Craig, on you and me. We are told, even though our free choice would dictate buying a Chinese-made sweater because the quality and price are perfect, rather than an American-made sweater where we're not pleased with the price and quality. We are said, if you want to exercise your free, your ability to pick and choose how you spend your money, you will be denied that freedom or punished on it by assessing a tax. So you are paying a tax for the privilege of buying what you want. So. Tar forget the word tariff, 
it is a tax on American citizens otherwise exercise of free choice. That's what a tariff is. It's an obscenity. It also is bad for American business. And the whole concept of Chinese-made goods or so-and-so-made goods as opposed to our goods is utterly absurd. And Craig, for the benefit of your listeners, imagine if California wanted to encourage a a California-based automobile manufacturer. And California, even though it's unconstitutional, but I'm talking about the economic principle, California said there is a tariff on buying cars made outside of California, a very high tariff, so that very few people could afford to buy a car made in Detroit. That would be good for our automobile industry, California, wouldn't it? But there would be an uproar. If that seems utterly absurd when you test it one state against another, it is equally absurd when you test it one country against another. And ironically, it comes down to the attempt to use economics to try and uh, uh, move, manipulate, or control behavior, which uh, might be a good topic for a future edition of our conversation together, because there are so many ways in which we do just that. I'm thinking, for example, of all of the the new edition of so-called fast-track lanes that are appearing on major highways around the Bay Area. They've got one now functioning on the 680. They're working on one on the 580. They're working on one on the 101. And I'm thinking, isn't this interesting? Where heretofore, if you use the fast lane without benefit of a complete carpool, we penalized you and gave you a ticket uh, in order to try and modify the behavior. Now we're suggesting what we're going to do is simply charge you for the behavior. And, 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 and it, 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 this is not necessarily a debate about uh, whether or not um, the toll lanes are good ideas or bad ideas, but the broader picture of the way in which we so often try to use economics to motivate behavior or or even things like disclosures of calories on menus and on labels and at grocery stores. So we'll have to, unfortunately, because we're out of time, save that topic for a future edition of our um, our visit together, Bob. But it's one that I'm eager to hear uh, your opinion on. And we invite our listeners to tune in and catch Bob's insights uh, every Sunday at 8 a.m. on the Bob Zadek Show. The program can be heard locally on Bay Area's 860 a.m. KTR be the answer and you can catch a reprise broadcast sunday evenings at 5 p.m on am 1220 kdow details of course as always about bob's latest book secret sauce the founder's original recipe for limited american democracy along with podcasts of past shows and other resources at bob's website bobzadek.com that's bob z-a-d-e-k bobzadek.com and bob as always thank you so much my friend for the time All right, we're here at 6 o'clock. Let's uh, head over to the KFAX Traffic Center, get you the latest on some headline news. But first, the latest on some headline traffic. Brian Peacock, what's going on out there? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.